Hello and welcome to SCOTUS Blog's first podcast. My name is Tom Goldstein. I'm one of the founders of the blog and I'm the head of the Supreme Court practice at Aiken Gump in Washington, D.C. We're using the podcast to try and illuminate some of the issues surrounding the Supreme Court in uh, ways that don't fit as well in just written product on the blogs as posts, that uh, there are some issues we think that can be more helpfully talked about than written about. And the first one uh, that I'm going to talk about is the reasons that the Supreme Court takes cases, what factors the justices are looking at. The court gets roughly 7,500 cert petitions a year. A lot are pauper petitions from prisoners and the like. Um, not that many of the cert petitions are actually taken that seriously, so that while it's true that only 1% of all the petitions are granted, that number is actually pretty misleading. There are, I'd say, in all likelihood, around 500 of the 7,500 cert petitions that are seriously looked at uh, and given uh, the due consideration uh, that comes with a, uh, a case that really might well turn into a Supreme Court case. And of the cases that the court takes, the roughly 80 or so that are granted plenary review, that oral argument is held in, that briefing is submitted on the merits, 75% of those involve a conflict between federal courts of appeals or state Supreme Courts, a so-called circuit split. So in getting down from either 7,500 or 500, whatever you want to use as the baseline number, down to 80, the justices obviously have to use a set of factors, and that's what I want to talk about today. Rule 10 of the Supreme Court's rules is the only official guidance from the court on what it is that the justices are looking for. And truthfully, it's written in such broad terms, and it's written so broadly precisely because the court can take any case it wants and you know, uh, is not constrained by statute, really, uh, uh, from hearing anything that's at least within its jurisdiction. But the very broad language of the rule can be misleading and encourages probably some petitions that should never be filed. For example, Rule 10A suggests that the justices would hear a case in which the decision below has, quote, so far departed from the accepted and usual course of judicial proceedings or sanctioned such a departure by a lower court as to call for an exercise of this court's supervisory power. And 10C says that they might review a state court or U.S. Court of Appeals decisions that, decision that, quote, has, involves an important question of federal law that has not been but should be settled by this court um, or has decided an important federal question in a way that conflicts with relevant decisions of this court. And every losing litigant really thinks that they have a very important case and that the decision below is wrong. And the justices aren't interested in correcting uh, mistakes that affect individual litigants. They are interested in deciding much broader questions of federal law that have consequence for lots and lots of cases. Uh, And they really are looking at five factors that I want to just spell out here, and then in the later podcast I can talk about in greater depth. Here are the five things that they're looking for and that people should be prepared to demonstrate with respect to the cert petitions, and people opposing cert petitions should be prepared to uh, address and prove don't exist in the particular case. The first is that there is a pure question of federal law presented by the case. It's that the cert petition doesn't turn on the Court of Appeals or the trial court's understanding of the facts of the case, and you're not asking the Supreme Court to 
overturn the factual findings, however ridiculous it might seem to the petitioner, that were made by the Court of Appeals. The second, and this is the most important one, is that that pure question of law, not fact, is one on which the courts of appeals or, or state supreme courts are divided. And this isn't something abstract so that, oh, there's a difference in methodology or maybe the standard of review was somewhat different, but that you can say with confidence that if the same question had been presented to another U.S. Court of Appeals, that Court of Appeals would have decided the, di- the issue differently. And the reason that's so important is that the justices really do view themselves as having an important role of unifying federal law, that the same statute, the same regulation, the same constitutional provision shouldn't mean two different things uh, in two different parts of the country. The third question, we have a question of federal law on which there's a conflict. The third question is that the issue is ready to be decided now, that there would be no benefit to letting the lower courts think about this question some more. It need not, and this is the term of art, percolate any further. Every lesson that there is to be learned about this issue, this issue has been learned. The justices uh, won't gain from any further insights from lower court judges. Fourth, On that important question that's divided the federal courts or state supreme courts that's ready for decision, that question is cleanly presented by this case. It's not a side issue. It's not something that the Court of Appeals suggested it had a view on but wasn't determinative. But it was the single issue on which the case turned in the lower courts. And the reason that's important is that the justices want to know that if they take up the case, they will decide that important question that has given rise to the circuit conflict. And finally, and one would ordinarily think, uh, with a lot of experience in briefing, this would be the first thing, but it's actually the last thing, is that the Court of Appeals, in deciding that legal issue, got it wrong. By saying it's the final point, I don't mean to suggest it's irrelevant. To the contrary, the justices decide Uh, 75% of their cases by reversing. So it's obvious and necessarily the case that they are taking uh, cases, granting cert, with an eye to the merits. But you really have to get through the first four hurdles, usually, in that 75% of the cases in which the justices are granting cert to resolve a circuit conflict first. And then the justices also want to know that the decision below is erroneous. They will take cases in which they think there is a clear conflict and the decision below was correct in order to bring uniformity to federal law. But more often than not, they are more willing to step into a case and decide it, uh, particularly if there isn't that broad a circuit conflict, if they're convinced that the decision below was wrong. So as I said, in a later podcast, we may elaborate on some examples of those five different factors, but that really is the set of considerations that the justices are looking at in granting cert. Thanks very much.